If you guys would please take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 13. We will be focusing on verses 18 to 30. Last Sunday, we began to study the farewell discourse in John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. All those chapters contain this farewell discourse Jesus gave to his disciples on the night of his arrest, betrayal and arrest. And it's, it's sort of some marching orders and uh, kind of a farewell marching order, f farewell uh, preparatory kind of thing for them as they kind of begin to take on the ministry in his absence. And uh, last Sunday we focused on the example of love Jesus set in verses 1 through 17 where he stooped down to wash his disciples' feet. One of the things that just uh, marvels me over that is this is the king of kings, the sovereign lord of the universe, steps out of glory to come to earth to proclaim the gospel and complete the gospel for dead sinners like you and I. And here's this king of the universe bowing to wash the sinful disciples' feet, just a kind of a mind-blowing thing. And he commanded that they humble themselves and serve each other in a like manner. So in his absence, because he's going to be gone soon, he wants them to serve in a like manner, to humble themselves and uh, to do things that he did to follow his example. And reminded of that great passage where Jesus literally said that he had, you know, he'd come to serve, not to be served, Matthew 20, 28. And it's, it's, just a, it's just a humbling thing to see the Lord of the universe serving in such a way. And, and uh, even magnified and beyond that is to see him serve at the cross and lay down his life, which is uh, much more extravagant than washing feet. But he sets this example for them, for past, present, and future disciples, those who would follow him, that they must follow his example, they must be humble, and they must serve. And so we're still in that upper room setting where the, the Last Supper transpired. And we know that Judas Iscariot, he was there, and he had satanic intentions the whole time. The other 11 were there to fellowship with one another in Jesus and, and just to enjoy the Lord's presence. But, but Judas wasn't there for the right reasons. In fact, he'd never been a real and actual disciple of Jesus Christ. He'd followed along in that sense and capacity, but he always had malicious intent. He was always very self-serving. He was the treasurer who stole money and these sorts of things. He wanted Jesus to be this conquering king at that moment and establish his kingdom so he could get a high position in his kingdom. That's what he was interested in. And of course, when he realized that that was not why Jesus came the first time, um, he, uh, he, he got angry. He got upset. He got disheartened and chose to betray the Lord. And I was thinking of Judas this last week. He really was an outsider from the beginning. He was from Kirioth which is in a, a small village in Judea. The other disciples were, were from other parts. And so he was this kind of unique 
uh, distinct person who was from a, a, a different zone, a different community than all the rest of them, so, uh, which is interesting. And, and if you notice the, the lists of the disciples that Jesus chose in, chose in the Gospels, his name always appears last. He was literally chosen last. And whenever you see his name at the end of the list, it always says like in a parenthetical statement, the one who betrayed Jesus or whatever. So he was kind of always an outsider, but he was chosen by divine decree to accomplish a particular purpose, and that's the betrayal of Jesus, which sets up the cross and our redemption and everything else. But he's at this dinner, and he's got the wrong intentions. Previously, he had worked out a deal with the religious leaders to lead them to Jesus so they could arrest him. And they had attempted, according to the Gospel of John, many times to arrest Jesus. They, they just couldn't do it. Jesus either escaped or something happened where they couldn't get their hands on him. And, and Judas, literally before this dinner, goes and sets up uh, a scenario where he will lead them to Jesus at some point. We read about that in Matthew 26, 14 through 16. And Judas was very familiar with the place where Jesus was actually arrested later that evening. Um, the Garden of Gethsemane was on the Mount of Olives, and, and that was a place where Jesus had spent quite a bit of time with his disciples. They actually had a campsite there, and when they would go into the city, into Jerusalem for various feasts and things, they would usually stay right outside of the city on the other side of the Kidron Valley at this location to camp. And so Judas knew that, that Jesus and the disciples would be at this spot later that evening, and it's where they camp regularly, Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. So he's thinking in his mind, tonight's the night, and, and once, once this supper you know, is, is over with, then I'll slip away and I'll grab the religious leaders. I'll go to the Sanhedrin or the temple or wherever they're at. I'll go find them, and I'll set it up, and they can follow me to where Jesus will be in a little bit. So he's literally sitting at the dinner table, at the supper table, biding his time. He's just waiting for an opportunity to get out of there to go do this uh, dastardly deed. And Jesus was fully aware of Judas's treachery and plan. Back in verse 10 of this chapter, he made a statement to Peter that reveals his foreknowledge concerning Judas. He said to Peter, and you are clean. And then he says, but not every one of you. And who was the disciple of the 12 that was unclean? It was obviously Judas. He was the unclean disciple because he refused to trust in Jesus' atoning work as Messiah and Savior. And so, in other words, Jesus has been alluding to or pointing to Judas the whole night, but he hasn't just outright named him or pointed him out, but he's been alluding to him. He's, he's been giving allusions, hey, there's somebody here in our midst. Not all of you are clean. And so he's been kind of, you know, paving the way to, to reveal his betrayer. And in this next section, we will see Jesus come right out and reveal Judas as his betrayer. And, and we will discover his rationale for doing so. Jesus actually had a reason for revealing him at this supper. And obviously, we'll look at other important truths. So we're going to pick it up at verse 18. John chapter 13, verse 18. Jesus continues, I am not speaking of all of you, he says. I know whom I have chosen. So he's coming out of, of talking about how, how they're clean, 
and, and, and how they needed their feet washed, but how they don't need their whole bodies washed. This is the conversation he had with Peter. So basically what he's saying is, is that you're clean, but now he's saying, I am not speaking of all of you. So again, there's another illusion. One of you is not clean. And he says, I know whom I have chosen. And then it says, but scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Oh, here's another illusion to Judas. He's referring to him. Judas is, is one that is not clean. Judas is one that, that Jesus has not chosen, which is an interesting point because Jesus clearly chose the 12 men sitting at this table as his disciples or apostles, right? Luke chapter 6 12 through 16. So, so he literally names off the guys at some moment during his ministry. So he did choose them to be his disciples. But here it says, the one that's unclean is one whom I have not chosen. What, what is going on here? Well, the reference here is not to being chosen as a disciple. It is being chosen to be effectually called unto salvation. There was one in their midst that had not been called effectually through the sovereign grace and power of God, through the Holy Spirit, to salvation. In other words, there was one there who had been left alone, left in his sin, which is what all sinners prefer anyways. They don't know anything but sin until they get saved. Then, all of a sudden, they can see the glory of God and they can see their sin. So one had been left alone. One had not been chosen. One had been left alone, chosen as a disciple, but not chosen in terms of election. Why? Why was he not chosen? Why was he unclean? Why was he in this situation that he was in that he actually cherished? Speaking of Judas, so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus says. What scripture? The scripture he quoted in the second half of verse 18. It's Psalm 41.9. There's actually a scripture that talks about the betrayal of Jesus that is a prophetic text pointing to Judas. thousand years previous, this psalm had been written and, and this prophecy had been given. King David lamented his betrayal by a close, trusted companion, one who had shared a meal with him. And if you know anything about meals back in those days, it was a, a sign of friendship and intimacy with somebody. Today, we just sit down at a table and fly through our food with the TV on in the background or whatever. Not a very intimate thing. But in Jewish culture, especially ancient Jewish culture, and in Middle Eastern culture, it's a very reverent, intimate setting where you're getting to know someone whom you want to have relationship with. And David, in this psalm, is just lamenting this trusted companion whom he had many meals with. And the sharing of a meal symbolized intimate fellowship. And I think David was probably referring to his chief counselor, um, Ahithophel, Ahithophel, it's a, yeah, it took me I don't, 50 attempts to get that down, Ahithophel, and Ahithophel was, uh, he was this guy who was really the chief counselor to David, he gave, gave him all this counsel on how to run his kingdom and, and, and all of these things, and, and this guy literally abandoned his position in the king's court and joined the king's son, Absalom, in a deadly coup attempt. 2 Samuel 15, 31. How many of you are familiar with the Old Testament story of, of David actually having to go to war with his own son, Absalom? The kingdom is divided. And, and Ahithophel is, is, is his, like, I mean, first of all, Absalom's his son, so that was heartbreaking. And then to have 
his own chief counselor, one of his most trusted servants, side with his son in this coup. Just, it was too much for him to bear. And at the same time that he's writing out this lament about this trusted servant who had abandoned him, he's simultaneously prophesying about the Messiah who would come a thousand years later and and the betrayal Jesus would experience at the hands of a close companion, one whom he had shared many meals with, Judas. Jesus basically tells the disciples, I have not chosen and cleansed all of you, that I too will experience betrayal and, and the prophecy about me will be fulfilled. So you get the idea of God's sovereignty there, leaving Judas in his sin so that Judas can follow the desires of his heart and the inclinations of his heart and his fallenness and the leading of Satan who actually possessed him so that he can follow through and betray Jesus, which leads to a number of events and ultimately our redemption. As believers, we tend to think that, that God, you know, that He only uses His people, that He, that he only works through His people, through Christians, to, to accomplish His will and purposes. And this verse clearly shows that He also uses the reprobate, those whom God did not choose for salvation, those whom God leaves alone. God uses kings and nations and, and, and unbelievers of, of every sort to accomplish His will and purposes. He, he uses everyone, believer and unbeliever, to accomplish His will and purposes. Have you ever heard of the doctrine called compatibilism? Has anyone ever heard of this doctrine? It's okay if you could slip your hand up a little bit. Yeah, my wife has because I talk about it It just in the house over and over. She's like, I have no choice but to know about it. It's a, it's a fascinating doctrine, and uh, I think that we all believe it in a sense, but we don't know the title for it. And it is the biblical view that, that divine sovereignty and, and human free will are compatible, that they are compatible. It, it teaches that there is, and my, my favorite part of compatibilism is that it teaches that there is a dual explanation for every choice humans make. There is a dual explanation for everything that people do. Man does something, the explanation is man did what he wanted to do. But the other side of the coin there is that man did something to accomplish God's purpose that he had predestined in eternity past. I mean, that's just like some big stuff. Now, if you think in terms of God's sovereignty, then obviously if God is absolutely sovereign, as I believe he is, as I believe scripture teaches clearly, then then every choice and every action and everything must be done under the umbrella of his sovereignty in accordance with his will and plan. Now, that's just a lot of stuff happening all over the place throughout all time. And wow, that's, that's a big God. But compatibilism deals with this subject and it tries to put handles on it so we can understand how God's sovereignty works, how human will works, how God accomplishes his purposes through all things. Compatibilism teaches that God determines human choices, yet every person freely makes his or her own choices. Yeah, compatibilism tries to explain that. It teaches that God's causal power is exercised, so He never coerces people to choose as they do, yet they always choose in accordance with His sovereign plan. 
<laughs> he doesn't literally have to cause people to do things, and yet when they do things, it lines up perfectly with his sovereign will and plan. This is big stuff, like, I don't get it. A supportive verse for compatibilism would be Genesis 50, 20, where Joseph tells his brothers that their intentions were evil when they left him in a ditch to die, but God meant it for good because from that moment forward, a chain of events occurred that resulted in the rescue of Joseph's family and the Israelites from a deadly famine. So there you can see compatibilism. Man does something evil, yet God intended to bring good through it. For that evil, wicked deed, those brothers did. God intended to bring good through it and preserved his life and brought good through it. So God sovereignly ordained their evil action, but he sovereignly ordained to work good through it. That's a big God. In our scenario, we see compatibilism here. Judas freely chose to betray Jesus because he was angry and wanted to punish him. Judas did this of his own volition without any knowledge of God's sovereign will, without any knowledge of the true God at all. Judas is an, is an unsaved, unregenerate, um, reprobate person. And he does what he does because he does what he does what he does because he wants to do these things. And he intended evil toward Jesus. And he is fully culpable for it. He is responsible for his actions. And yet God sovereignly ordained and sovereignly supervised Judas's actions. But God intended to bring good through his evil deed. Scripture would be fulfilled and God's plan of salvation would move forward. Listen to this excerpt from a, a book I'm reading on this subject of compatibilism by Scott Christensen. It's a phenomenal book. It's called What About Free Will? Listen to this. In order to orchestrate the crucifixion of Christ, God had to manage the intricate matrix of choices by Judas, the Sanhedrin, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the hostile crowds, and the Roman soldiers, in addition to the circumstances that conspired to affect the choices of these people. Yet it cannot be argued that any of the individuals involved felt forced against their wills to act as they did. Rather, all the participants acted freely. Wow. Now, there are some out there that that deny the doctrine of compatibilism because they believe it places limits upon their libertarian free will. And when I say libertarian, I'm not talking about a political party. I'm talking about libertarian free will means my free will is not hindered by anything. It's not hindered by sin. It's not hindered by my sinful nature. It's not hindered by anything. And those who uphold this view of libertarian free will deny the doctrine of compatibilism because they think it infringes upon their free will. But what they don't understand is that unregenerate humans, those who are spiritually dead in their trespasses, Ephesians 2.1, do not possess libertarian free will. Their wills are in bondage due to enslavement to sin. How free is our will? If we are unregenerate, if we haven't been made new, if we haven't been born again, then our will is bound up by our sinful nature, and it cannot transcend and go beyond our fallen nature. But if we have been made new, new creations, our will is restored to a fully libertarian kind of mode. But they don't understand this. 
They don't understand that sin constrains the will from choosing what is truly righteous. Compatibilism doesn't limit the will. Sinful human nature limits the will. If we are still dead in our sin, our wills are limited. If we have been made alive in Christ through the Holy Spirit by grace through faith, our wills have been set free. We can choose in accordance with our new nature. And Christians are the only people on the face of this earth who are actually fully free. Spiritually, I'm speaking, because you can easily get locked up in jail and now you don't have natural freedom. But in terms of spiritual freedom, Christians, those who believe in Jesus, are the only people on the face of the earth who are truly free, who can choose this day as Joshua to serve their flesh or to serve our Most High God. They can actually do that. But the person who's still dead in sin can only choose sin. If compatibilism is untrue, as some suggest, then Scripture is erroneous, especially passages like my favorite, Romans 8.28. If there is no dual explanation for the choices people make, how can God cause all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes? When people do what they do, God is secretly accomplishing His purposes and achieving His sovereign will on earth. He is taking all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, and causing them to work together for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Compatibilism is false. That verse is false. Judas had evil intentions and of his own volition. He propagated the worst act of betrayal in history. Parents don't name their children Judas because of this guy. You ever met somebody named Judas? If you do, run! It's probably not going to be a very good friend. Parents just don't, they don't name their kid after this guy because of what he did. He committed the worst act of betrayal in history. And yet God had good intentions. And in accordance with his sovereign will, he initiated a chain of events that led to the greatest act of love in history. The death of his only begotten son on a cross. Compatibilism. In verse 19, Jesus gives the rationale, the reason for revealing his betrayer. Look at 19 with me. Jesus said, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. This verse shows that Jesus wanted to make sure that Judas's betrayal would not shake the other disciples' faith in him. By telling them in advance before it came to pass, He assured that in the future they could look back and and know that everything that had transpired was going to happen. Like he's telling them in advance so that it won't take them by surprise. And then that they can look back later and say, look, Jesus warned us about him. When the betrayal did occur, the disciples, though scattered and fearful, would at some point recognize Jesus' omniscient foreknowledge and believe in his deity. So the rationale, reason for for revealing the betrayer is so that when it happens, their faith would not be demolished. Because it had to have come as a surprise because Judas had them so fooled. We might say that, that Jesus gave them advanced warning to protect their faith and also prop it up and make it stronger. 
And this is just another example of Jesus' love. He washes their feet earlier. Now he's given them advanced warning of what's going to happen so that they don't get their faith all jacked up, shaken, and broken. Jesus loves his disciples so much that he forewarns them about future events so their faith in him will remain intact and even grow through these dreadful scenarios. Look at 20. Truly, truly, notice the double truly there. It's a double emphatic. He's about to say something really important. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. At first, this verse appears to be out of place, but it it is totally apropos. It makes total sense when you understand why he said it. Jesus knew that the disciples, the 11, would be shocked by his prediction of this betrayer. They might think that having a traitor in their midst would destroy their credibility as a group and maybe end their mission. Here, Jesus reassures them that that Judas's treachery, his, his devilish deed, would not nullify their commission. He was still going to send them out. And when people received them by believing the gospel, they would be receiving the one who sent them, Jesus, and the one who sent Jesus, the Father. So Jesus makes this statement to build them up and to help them understand that when this goes down, the mission is not over. It's only just begun. You're going to go out and you're going to preach the gospel just as planned. And when you do, people are going to believe the gospel and they're receiving me when they believe it and they're receiving the one who sent me, the Father. So he's giving them a guarantee. Yeah, it's going to get ugly, but guess what's going to come through it? You're going to do what you're supposed to do. In fact, the title Jesus gave to his disciples in Luke 6, 13, apostles emphasizes this truth. In Greek, apostle means sent with the full authority of the sender. Think of an ambassador. An ambassador is sent by a particular nation, and he or she bears the full authority of that nation that sent them. Jesus guaranteed that Judas's treachery would not impact the other disciples' apostolic commission and that things would move forward as planned. They would go out with all the authority of Christ and accomplish their mission, and people would get saved, receiving Jesus, receiving the one who sent Jesus. Look at 21. Some of these move faster than others because they're just shorter. It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, another double emphatic truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, what's the important thing he says? One of you will betray me. So now he's taking it up a notch. Before it was not all of you were clean. Now he's saying, hey, newsflash, one of you will betray me. This is without a doubt. Truly, truly, this is one of the most important things I say to you tonight on this evening One of you in this room will betray me. After preparing the disciples by reassuring them that they would continue to be his representatives, Jesus becomes troubled in his spirit, and he comes right out and declares poignantly, clearly, without a doubt, one of you is going to betray me. We saw a similar emotional response from Jesus back in John 12, 27, when he was contemplating the hour of his death on the cross. The Greek verb for troubled is terasso, which means severe mental or spiritual turmoil. It appears in several places in the New Testament. 
Zacharias experienced terrasso, extreme emotional turmoil, when the angel Gabriel appeared to him in the temple, Luke 1.12. And if an angel appeared to you, you'd experience terrasso. The disciples experienced terrasso when they saw Jesus walking on water, right? They saw him walking on water. Look, it's a ghost. It's Casper, but it looks like Jesus. They freaked out. Matthew 14, 26. They experienced terrasso when they saw Jesus resurrected. Luke 24, 38. Jesus experiences terrasso when he comes to Lazarus' tomb, right? John eleven thirty three. 33. When he contemplated the cross, John 12, 27. And when he considered his betrayer, verse 21 of our text. Andreas Kostenberger wrote, In the present passage, Jesus' emotions are shown to be in a state of turmoil. His whole inner self convulsing at the thought of one of his closest followers betraying him to his enemies. And that's fascinating when you consider Jesus knows in advance everything that's going to transpire. And yet, as a man, he experiences all of the emotional turmoil and duress that any of us would if we were to go through something like this, or if we were to have some kind of prior knowledge to what we're about to go through. MacArthur listed several things that troubled the Lord here. First, his unrequited or unreturned love for Judas. So at this very moment, at this intimate setting when they're having a dinner, and, 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 and here's the thing, Jesus knows exactly who Judas is and what he's going to do and all of these things, and yet he still loves him. And, and MacArthur proposes that he's upset or that he's bothered in his spirit, in his heart, at the fact that Judas doesn't return the love. Never returned the love. Have you ever loved someone who didn't return the love? That is one of the most devastating emotions and feelings you will ever experience. My own father. Just devastating to love him and for him not to reciprocate. Maybe you've gone through something like that. Jesus experiences that here. Second, Judas' ingratitude for, for all the, the kindness he had showed him, Right? Jesus was, was so kind to Judas at every step of the way, and yet there is ingratitude in Judas. There is a, a satanic plan to, to get him arrested and to get him killed. Ingratitude. Third, the malevolent presence of Satan. Verse 27, Satan was coming in and out of this room. Coming into Judas, the presence of Satan bothered the Son, Jesus. When, when Satan shows up, everything changes. The, the presence of evil is detected and, 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 and things are off. It's, it's, it's like you're in the same room with, with a bitter adversary, someone whom you've maybe tried to reconcile with and you can't, but it just throws off the whole vibe in the room. And, and, and Judas being there threw off the vibe. Believe me, he's got this sweet fellowship going with Eleven while he's got a traitor here. But then for Satan, Jesus' real adversary, and our real adversary, for him to come into the room, that malevolent being, that fallen angel that troubled Jesus. For the fearful fate that awaited Judas in hell. In that great passage that, that describes God as, as, as 
not rejoicing over the destruction of the wicked. You know, God knows precisely in intricate detail what the wicked experience, and he doesn't rejoice at that. He doesn't rejoice at the destruction of his enemies. And and Jesus knows exactly where Judas is headed. Jesus created hell. He knows it in and out. He is the warden over hell. Satan isn't. Jesus is, and he knows it, and he knows what that torment is like, and he knows what unbelievers, those who reject him, the devil and the demons, all, he knows what they experience there. And and I think there's a moment here where, where he's kind of caught up in the horror of that for Judas. This is a a friend, a companion, and he's going to go to hell. The fearful fate of Judas. Fifth, the knowledge that the betrayal would lead Jesus to the cross with its sin-bearing and separation from the Father. That is the hour that he referred to many times in John's gospel, and quite frankly, he dreaded it not because he had to be pulverized and beaten to a pulp and slaughtered and killed by men. That didn't faze him. He didn't fear those who could destroy the physical body. Being perfectly holy without sin and having to take upon all the sin onto his own body. In fact, so much so, he becomes sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And I think the thing that bothered him most is the separation from the Father. He has never ever tasted that, even as a man, fully man, fully God, as a full man, never once for a nanosecond experienced separation from his heavenly Father, never once, and it would occur on Calvary. And I think it filled him with such trepidation and anxiety and emotional turmoil, terrasso. All of these things are bearing upon the soul of Christ in this room. How did the disciples respond to Jesus' bold, straightforward declaration, right? One of you will betray me. How did they respond? 22 through 25. And I think if I was there as one of the disciples, this is me. This is what I would have been doing. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. They're just looking around going, huh? One of his disciples whom Jesus loved... We know who he's referring to. That's John. John never identifies himself in his gospel, but he did identify himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And what he's never saying is that he loved me more than the others. He's just saying he loved me. And, and John is the apostle of love. And so one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side, right? Sitting to his side. In verse 24, so Simon Peter motioned to him, motioned to the one who, whom Jesus loved motioning to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, like, hey, John, ask him, who who, who is he referring to here? So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And these guys just started looking around the table when they found out one of them was going to betray Jesus. And they just, Luke twenty two twenty three adds a detail that John doesn't include. Not only did they look around and stare at each other, but they began to, question each other. Like, is it you? Is it you? Is it me? It's not me. Is it you? They literally began to question each other. Which of you would do such a thing? Who is going to do this? Judas, 
the betrayer is there. He knows exactly what he's going to do, but he actually pretends to go along with the others. This is an outrage. Who is it? I bet you it's Simon, Peter. He called him Satan one time. Get behind me, Satan. Remember that one, Peter? Shut up, Judas. Even Judas pipes up. At one point, he looks Jesus straight in the... He knows what he's going to do. He looks Jesus straight in the eyes, and he says, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Matthew 26, 25. Oh, how deceptive, how clever. At some point, Peter motions to John, who's leaning against Jesus, whom Jesus loved, that disciple, right? John, hey, man, you're, you're right there next to him. Hey, ask him. Ask him. And John, who is reclining he, next to Jesus, he kind of leans into Jesus, and he whispers, Lord, who is it? Point him out to me. Now look at 26, verse 26. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now the method Jesus employed for identifying his betrayer is, is rather interesting. He tore off a morsel of unleavened bread and he, and he dipped it into a mixture. What would the mixture consist of? Bitter herbs, vinegar, water, salt, crushed dates, figs, and raisins. Kind of making me hungry. Sounds pretty good. He takes the bread. He takes the unleavened bread. It's like a big, thick tortilla and, and pita bread. And he dips it into this mixture and he hands it over to Judas. And in that culture, the handing of a dipped morsel to a, to a person during supper was a gesture of friendship. It had significance. It wasn't just like, here, here's some food. Here's some dipped bread. In fact, I, I'd be a little awkward if somebody dipped my bread for me. I'd be like, well, you want to feed it to me too? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Not going that far, bro. Here you go. But right, this is, there is symbolism here. There is symbolism in having a meal with someone. When you have a meal with somebody, intimacy, friendship, I want to get to know you. But when you take unleavened bread in Jewish culture and you dip it in that goodness and you hand it to someone, you are saying, I want to be your friend. It symbolizes that. And through this, Highly symbolic act, Jesus communicates very clearly to Judas, you are my friend. Wow. Full knowledge of what's about to transpire. Full knowledge of the unreciprocated love. Full knowledge of his bitter hatred in his heart and the animosity he's, he's, he's holding. All of this, full knowledge of all of it. And yet he dips the bread and hands it to him and says, you are my friend. You are my intimate friend. R. Kent Hughes wrote, Jesus was reaching out to Judas. He was saying, Judas, here is my friendship. Here is restoration. Judas, here is my heart. All you have to do is take it, old friend. Will you? F.F. Bruce wrote, Jesus' action in singling Judas out for a mark of special favor may have been intended as a final appeal to him to abandon his treacherous plan and, and play the part of a true disciple. It's just incredible to me that 
that with all of that information and foreknowledge, Jesus is still reaching out to him in friendship and possibly even giving him a way out. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, there is another way that we can accomplish this. It doesn't have to be you. That's some love. That's, that's real love. That's real character manifested in Jesus. No wonder, no wonder the Word of God says, love your enemies and pray for them. It's just spectacular. You know, there's a lot of speculation surrounding the suicide of Judas. How many of you knew that he actually went and hung himself after this? He actually killed himself after this, not right after, but the next day. And there's, there's a ton of speculation as to why. Some people say, well, he went and, and killed himself. You know, obviously, he changed his mind about this scenario. That's clear. But, but they say, well, you know, he, he did it because he was remorseful or he did it because... You know, he felt bad about it or whatever. At one point, before he actually kills himself, between this betrayal that night at Gethsemane and the next day and before Jesus actually goes to the cross, he, he literally goes to the temple and, and tries to return the money because he got paid to do this dastardly deed. And these are his own words. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But the religious leaders who who gave him the money in the first place, scoffed at him, laughed at him. What is that to us? All they cared about was getting rid of Jesus. They didn't care about how Judas felt in that moment. And Judas is literally upset about the fact that they won't take the money and cancel out the plan and maybe release Jesus. And he, he throws the money on the floor and it goes flying and sliding across the temple floor. And he departs and he goes right out to the potter's field and fashions a noose ties it to a tree, jumps off a branch, and kills himself. And the speculation is, why did he hang himself? Some say, oh, it was repentance. Well, no, repentance is turning from your ways and trusting in Jesus, not killing yourself. I don't think it was necessarily remorse or regret, maybe a type of regret, but I think primarily it was a deep guilt. And I think in that moment when he realized that they were going to pursue the death penalty for Jesus, which may not have been something he intended. Maybe he just wanted Jesus disciplined or punished or taken out of the ministry for a season. I don't know. I think he wanted him dead, but maybe he changed his mind. In any case, I think in that moment when he realized it was actually going to happen, he remembered the night before and the passing of that bread. He wanted to be my friend. He wanted to be my friend. That's all he wanted to do. I think that, you know, as a person, they always say, as a person's about to die, their life flashes before their eyes. I don't know if this happened with him or that's even true, but I think that three years of touring with Jesus passed through his mind, and he was thinking, wow, he wanted to be my friend. He was endlessly kind to me, and He may have thought that. He may have thought he was always kind to me. He wanted to be my friend. What have I done? But I think the biggest thing that he realized in that moment and the real reason why he killed himself was because at that moment he realized that Jesus was an innocent man. Like as the ministry is flashing before his eyes, he can't see a moment where Jesus ever sinned or did anything harmful or hateful or wicked or evil to anyone never uttered a harsh word, 
And he's thinking, this guy is truly innocent. And he's realizing because he's innocent and he's going to be killed because of me, that blood guilt is on me. Because that's what would happen. If somebody was executed or killed because of your false testimony or anything like that, or if you murdered them, that blood guilt would be on you and you would pay the price. And I think that's what happened. And he became racked with guilt. But instead of repenting, instead of confessing his sin and, and seeking Jesus for mercy and grace, instead of believing the gospel he heard preached for three years, he ties a noose around his neck and kills himself. Utterly tragic. People literally try to say, well, at that moment he went to heaven because that suicide was an act of repentance. No, it wasn't. It was an act of guilt. I recently read, and we typically think of suicide, and if you've ever been touched by that, I feel for you, but we usually think of people committing suicide because they hate their life so badly that they want to kill themselves. But somebody of decent authority says it's the reverse. They love themselves so much that they kill themselves because they know that it'll get attention. They know that it'll bring about hurt and pain for those who have allegedly wronged them. It's out of self-love, an imbalanced, improper level of self-love that people actually take them, their lives, not out of self-hatred. And that's an interesting perspective. Maybe that's true, but it happened here and it's tragic especially when you have one who is offering friendship and mercy. In a similar way, when the gospel goes out to people, Jesus is extending that mercy and that grace, and if they don't receive it, they commit spiritual suicide. Verse 27 is literally one of the most terrifying verses in Scripture, in my opinion. Please look at it with me. Then after he had taken, speaking of Judas, then after taking, the mor after taking the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Judas accepts the morsel but refuses Jesus' kindness and genuine offer of friendship as symbolized in the passing of the bread. At that precise moment, he became demon-possessed, but the demon that possessed him was no ordinary demon. It was not a low-ranking demon like those who were in the Gadarean madman in Luke 8.30. You remember the legion of demons that are in that guy, and Jesus cast them out in the, into the swine, and they run over the cliff and all drowned. Those were just standard-issue demons, far more powerful than us and very lethal, but this is not in the reference here. That's a regular low-ranking common demon. It was not a chief demon like the one Gabriel and Michael fought against during the Babylonian captivity, Daniel 10, 13. You remember the story where Gabriel's trying to bring a message to Daniel and he gets hung up by this chief demon. I think he's called the Prince of Persia. That's the demon's name. And, and the archangel Michael has to come and, and fight the demon to get Gabriel freed up so he can go and deliver the message to Daniel. That's a chief demon. That's very scary and terrifying to think that there are regular demons, frightening, but there are chief demons who oversee the low-ranking demons. Not that kind of demon. This one was none other than the serpent, 
Genesis 3.1, you know, the one who tempted Adam and Eve, the one who was more clever and crafty than the other creatures that God had created, right? This is the serpent. This is the prince of demons, Beelzebub, Matthew 12.24. This is the, the great dragon, Revelation 12.9, or the great red dragon. This is Satan himself. MacArthur wrote, Divine mercy gave way to divine judgment, and Judas was, in essence, handed over to Satan. 1 Timothy 1.20 He had spurned Christ's love for the last time, and his eternal doom was sealed in this moment. I know of no other instance where Satan himself possessed a person. I, I, I don't. I don't know of any other example. In, I'm not saying it doesn't exist or he hasn't, but I, I can't think of any other instance. I mentioned this to you last Sunday. I can't think of any other instance where Satan himself... I have read stories of, of demon possession. I've seen the exorcism of Emily Rose, and unfortunately I saw the exorcist. I've seen these stories. I've read stories. I know some of these things might be true or not. I don't know, but I've never, ever, ever heard of Satan himself taking up residency in a person. I suspect that the gravity of the situation warranted a direct possession by the devil. I mean, this is, this is a big thing that's going to happen here. This task was way too important to be delegated to a lesser demon or to even a chief demon. Satan personally entered Judas because he wanted to make sure that Judas followed through with the plan. He wanted to ensure that it would get done. And this actually resulted in Satan's own defeat. Isn't that wonderful? He takes his possession in Judas to make sure that it happens, thinking that he's going to be victorious, which was God's plan all along. And he commits a form of suicide by doing this. And this is actually, this is very interesting, this is actually the second time Judas was possessed by Satan himself. This is the second recording of it in the New Testament. The first time occurred prior to the Last Supper when he went to the religious leaders to negotiate a deal for leading them to Jesus. Satan was in Judas when he conferred with the chief priests, the officials, and when he accepted the payment of 30 pieces of silver. Luke 22, 3-6, Matthew 26, 15. So when Judas gets the idea of betraying Jesus or leading Jesus' adversaries to him, he goes to the Sanhedrin and he goes to the temple to work out a deal. And at that moment that he's negotiating deals, Satan comes into him to make sure that that deal happens. Twice he's possessed. And 30 pieces of silver was just the price of a slave. That was no fortune. That's how much Jesus meant to Judas. 30 measly pieces of silver, a slave's value, Exodus 21:32. But you must understand that it was also prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would not only be betrayed, but that he would be betrayed for that precise sum of money. Zechariah 11:12 through 13. Everything's playing out in accordance with God's predestined plan. Jesus was about to institute the Lord's Supper. That has not happened yet. Communion has not happened yet, and there's great controversy about that. Some say, well, Judas went through communion with, 
with Jesus. I find that to be impossible, especially since he's possessed by Satan. So, so it's okay. If that's true, then the rationale would be it's okay for unbelievers to do communion, which Scripture warns not to, and it's okay for Satan to do it. The Lord's Supper had not transpired here. Everything leading up to that was hors d'oeuvres. There was something served, but it was to, it was to pave the way for communion, for the institution of communion and the new covenant. So he's about to institute the Lord's Supper. And he was not going to have it marred or defiled by Judas, nor was he going to have it marred or defiled by Satan's presence. So what does he do? He dismissed them. What you are going to do, do quickly. In other words, hit the road. And this simple command that Jesus gave illustrates his sovereignty over the forces of darkness. Satan cannot make a move without the expressed consent of his maker, Jesus, the King of Kings. You ever thought about that? Satan can't do anything without approval. Have you ever read the book of Job? Have you ever read Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, where Satan or the devil comes to God? And God grants him permission to mess with Job. Satan couldn't do it without that permission. And here Jesus commands, go and do what you're going to do. In other words, I have sovereign power over you. I have control over my destiny. I have control over my own death. You'll do nothing without my approval. Now go and do what you're going to do. He exercises sovereign authority over man. He exercises sovereign authority over principalities, no matter how great they are. Satan is not Jesus' equal. You go to certain churches in town, they make you think that. They make a big deal about Satan. Satan can't make a move until he's told, go. And he tells him, go. They're not equals. They're not locked in an eternal battle. He's defeated. And he is about to bring his defeat through this act. They're not equals. He can do nothing without permission. And Jesus grants him permission. Go and do it. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And you see the laying down of his own life right here. Go and do what you're going to do. Then they get up. Jesus is the sovereign Lord. 28 and 29. Another response from the disciples now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. See, they haven't even done the feast yet. I'm talking about the Passover meal. They haven't done that. He hasn't instituted the Lord's Supper. Buy what we need for the feast. Or that maybe he should give something to the poor. When John whispers to Jesus, who is it? Jesus must have whispered back as he's handing over the bread. He doesn't say it out loud, obviously, because everyone else at the table had no idea what was going on or why Jesus had said something to Judas. Nobody there understood, probably except for John, understood why Jesus said, go and do what you're going to do. Why? Because there was whispering going around. There was quiet communication. They, they didn't know. And they figured that Jesus was just sending him because he had the money bag that he stole from. He had the money bag. He was the money bag keeper. He was the treasurer. They assumed, well, he must have sent him to buy supplies so that we can enjoy the main meal in a little bit here. 
Or maybe Jesus said, go and give some alms, something to the poor. They didn't understand what was playing out. Now look at our last verse, verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, now the reference here is to Judas. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So after taking the dipped morsel of bread and hearing Jesus' strong command to leave, Judas did what? Sat there and had another glass of wine? Had a little bit more pita dip? A little hummus? No. He left. He got up and went out. And after leaving the upper room, he must have walked over to the Sanhedrin or the temple to inform the religious leaders of where Jesus would be in a few hours. Not just to tell them where he would be, but to be the leader and to lead that faction, that group, to Jesus at Gethsemane and identify Jesus with a kiss on the cheek. Matthew 26, 47 through 50. How incredible that must have been for it to be pitch dark in this garden. It's on the side of a mountain. There's no candles. There's no lighting. There's no street lights. There's no oil lamps, nothing. They're there. It's pitch dark. And to see light coming up a path, and it's all torches, and then to see Judas out in front of it holding a torch. That must have been pretty an incredible sight when they were in the garden, and that's precisely how it played out. And John tells us that when Judas went out, when he left the upper room, it was night. There is a dual meaning here as we're about to close up. Not only had darkness descended over Jerusalem, because it was literally dark outside, not only had darkness descended over Jerusalem, but also over Judas's heart. When he left, he had walked away from the light of the world and was now completely under the sway of the power of darkness. Closing. I've got three final thoughts for you as we wrap up. First, Jesus experienced betrayal from a close companion, verse 18. And as our great high priest, Jesus understands our terrasso, our emotional turmoil when a close companion betrays us. You see, Jesus went through what he went through to accomplish God's sovereign plan of salvation in these things, but also to experience the things that we experience so that he could be qualified to be our great high priest. There isn't a thing that you haven't gone through, whether it be some kind of an emotional struggle or illness or sickness or something that you have experienced that he cannot relate to especially as something as devastating as, as a close companion betraying you. He knows what that feels like. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. He can relate to you. Draw close to Him, whatever your struggle may be, especially something as devastating as the betrayal of a close companion, friend, loved one. Maybe a brother or sister in Christ has done you harm. 
He knows what that's like. Draw close to him. That's the first observation or thought. Second, Jesus lovingly revealed Judas's treachery in advance so that his disciples' faith in him would be strengthened and built up rather than shaken and destroyed. Verse 19, Jesus has lovingly revealed in advance to us that life will be full of difficulty and various challenges that are meant to strengthen and build up our faith in Him rather than shake it and tear it down. In John 16, He said, Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Right there, He forewarns us. As my disciples, as my people, you're going to have trials you're going to have many, many trials and sorrows. You're not going to have an easy life filled with all sorts of health and wealth and prosperity. That's all garbage. There are times when, when things are going pretty smoothly, but for the most part, our lives are so up and down. It's tough. And he says, you're going to have trouble. And through James, he said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Trials are, are meant to test our faith in Jesus, not shake and destroy it. And the testing of our faith leads to perseverance, and, and perseverance leads to maturation, the bringing of our faith to maturity. There should be no surprises to us Christians. Jesus has lovingly forewarned us about trials, sorrows, and persecutions in the Word of God, and Right? He has warned us and He has told us specifically there is a purpose for them that, it, that is meant to build us up and sanctify us somehow. He has warned us. He has told us. And so, so we shouldn't be surprised when calamity strikes, but boy, are we ever surprised, aren't we? And sometimes we say, why are you letting this happen? Because I told you I would. When calamity strikes, we tend to lose our minds. We freak out. Why is this happening to me, Lord? It is happening because Jesus told us it would happen. It is happening because Jesus has a sanctifying purpose for it. The testing of our faith that it might give way to perseverance, and that perseverance would produce what He intends for it to produce, maturity. Remember this, because you are going to go through things, but remember He told you that you would, and remember that He has told you there's a divine purpose behind it. You're good. Even though it's hard. Lastly, three, Jesus extended the gracious hand of friendship to his enemy. Verse 26, Judas received the morsel but refused his friendship. In a similar way, Jesus extends his gracious hand of forgiveness, cleansing, and reconciliation to his enemies today. Who are his enemies? 
those who have not yet repented and trusted in Jesus by grace through faith. Everyone outside of Christ is an enemy of His. Unbelievers. My question is, are you still an enemy of Jesus? Receive His gracious offer. Take the morsel. Eat and live. Repent of your sin. Put your trust in Christ alone. Believe that He lived for your righteousness, died to pay for your sins, was buried to settle your account, that He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. For you. Lastly, if we are no longer enemies because we are in Jesus Christ by grace through faith, we are God's ambassadors in that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. As we go through this world, we represent another kingdom. And it is our responsibility to reflect the official position of heaven. We are in this world, but not of it. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, we must take the message of our King. That's who we belong to, King Jesus. We must take the message of King Jesus, the gospel, to the ends of the earth. We must implore men and women everywhere to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith. That is our mission. That is the goal. Amen.